Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service. The year is 1988. And you ask for a podcast, and I give you Unspooled. The movie, Die Hard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. This is the podcast where we talk about the greatest films of all time to find out if they really deserve to be called classics. Or if they are just remembered that way. That voice you heard, Paul Shear. Oh, Paul, happy holidays. Uh, and that voice you heard is Amy Nicholson. Amy, right back at you. Uh, I'm so excited to launch into our holiday season with a movie that people debate. Is it a Christmas movie? We'll get into that. Uh, but Die Hard is a cultural touchstone, a landmark film for so many reasons. And I really want to like explore the could have beens with this movie, because there's so many things that could have made this movie incredibly lame, immemorable, uh, and a total Limping flop. around like John McClane in a hallway with his knees busted and his feet bloody, you mean? Yeah. Uh, There are so many different directions here that really elevated the material. I mean, like the accidental discovery that Alan Rickman could do a Californian accent. But this is also a movie that was so unsure that Bruce Willis was the right guy to star in it, that Bruce Willis was the right guy to make a salary he's going to make for it, that they shot for his very first scene, the bit where he jumps off the roof with the fire hose, because there was a quiet bit of thought on the set. You know, if he dies, he dies. We'll have time to replace him if it's shot one. We'll also talk about how this movie fits into 1988 and how it subverted every trope of an action movie at this time. And I think that's the reason why it truly has become a classic. And I think we are due for something else like it. Die Hard, live on with a new film and a new franchise. Something brand new, but with your soul. That's what I want to hear. So, Amy, without any further ado, let's yippee-ki unspool it, motherfucker. Woo! <laughs> 
The year is 1988, and Hollywood is anticipating that Bruce Willis is about to look like a major failure. The moonlighting actor astonished the industry when he asked for $5 million to star in his new movie, Die Hard. And a $5 million salary in 1988 is practically unheard of. I mean, at the time, it is more money than Tom Cruise is making, and he has been number one at the box office for multiple years in a row. Bruce is a TV guy. He's only made two movies, both with the same director, Blake Edwards. The first blind date did okay. The second flopped. It only made $5 million at the box office. But Bruce wanted $5 million to star in Die Hard. And Bruce got $5 million to star in Die Hard. Not because the studio believed in him, just because they needed a big summer action movie. And every other real star, action star that is, said no. Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Burt Reynolds, Clint Eastwood, Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, Richard Gere, even Frank Sinatra. More on that later. The gossip in town is that Die Hard overpaid for this TV star, movie star wannabe that people may not even really like. I mean, he's just kind of tabloid fodder, dating Demi Moore and trying to become a singer with his album, The Return of Bruno, which I talk about a lot on How Did This Get Made, and doing these Seagram wine cooler commercials, which to me as a child were awesome. Now looking back, maybe my taste was a little skewed. Take a listen. Look here. Seagram's negative static around Bruce Willis is really being taken seriously. Like a theater chain pulls the Die Hard trailer from their own previews because every time it came on, the audience would, quote, groan and moan so much when Willis came on. Uh, The studio is believing in this bad buzz. They're getting really nervous. They cut Bruce Willis out of the very last trailer they make for the film. You see his face, but he doesn't say a single word in it. It's really just all about buildings and explosions. They begin to run newspaper ads for Die Hard that don't even include Bruce Willis's face. I mean, before this movie even opens, Bruce Willis is doing this interview with the LA Times, and he is having to swear to this journalist that he doesn't think being overpaid for this movie is going to kill his career. In part because of all of this, the studio decides, you know what? We're just going to open Die Hard in limited release. We're just going to open this in 12 theaters. They're basically treating it like it is a Polish movie about a donkey. And actually, if you know this Polish movie about a donkey that I'm talking about, it's really, really great. You should go see it. Whoa, I got to see this Polish movie. Uh, Well, what is it called now? You've got me interested. Oh, it's called EO. It just won a bunch of awards at LAFCA this year. It's like if you want to see like a punk rock donkey movie, it's amazing. Oh, uh, that's right up my alley. Uh, (laughs) Well, Die Hard doesn't have a donkey, and I wouldn't say it's punk rock, but its director, John McTiernan, is, like, white hot. All right, he's directing this script by Jeb Stewart uh, and Stephen D'Souza. It stars Bruce Willis as an NYPD cop, John McClane, who's just landed in L.A. to reconnect with his estranged wife, Holly, that's Bonnie Bedelia, who's a rising executive at the Nakatomi Corporation. McClane arrives at her office, Skyscraper, in time to clean himself up for their sex and cocaine-fueled Christmas party. That's Nakatomi's party, not Bonnie Bedelia's party. But right when he's taking off his shirt and shoes and socks to relax, making little uh, toes with the balls of his feet, the building is taken over by a dozen German-sounding bad guys who claim to be political terrorists but really just want to steal $640 million in what? Better bonds. 
John McClane must take down all of them, including the head villain Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, essentially by himself, since the only cop on the ground offering more help than harm is the Twinkie-loving and just so you know, his wife is a Twinkie-loving one, Uh, desk jockey named Al, played by Reginald Vell Johnson, who I do believe uh, continued this character in Family Matters, but we can get into that much later. Here, take a listen. You have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Die Hard opened on July 15th, 1988, and did good in limited release. So the next week, it opened wide, and it managed to hit a respectable number three on the box office charts. Die Hard actually never hit number one on the box office charts, but it did stay in the top five for 10 weeks and wound up ending the year in the top 10 overall. However, Bruce Willis did not win over critics. I mean, Richard Schickel at time said that, quote, Willis's presence is whiny and self-involved. In the first half of the movie, Willis wears an undershirt. In the second half, he gets rid of it. And that is pretty much it for his performance. Ouch. Uh, But Die Hard did make him a bona fide movie star, somebody who can command $5 million. And the movie eventually became, I would say, stone cold beloved. So what was on the radio on July 15th when Die Hard tiptoed nervously into theaters? It was a ballad from Cheap Trick, who, according to rumor, did not want to record this song and even crushed the demo tape under their feet when they heard that they had to. But this week is all about disgruntlement turning into success. And this song is all about love and protecting the people you love and about giant fireballs. It is called The Flame. Classic. I love it. Just like <laughs> just like when you put those detonators down a, a big old elevator shaft, you get a nice flame. Amy, I love this movie, and I'm not going to make any bones about it. And in talking about it with you, I assume that you like it. I don't like it. I love it. I love okay. this movie, too. I love Great. this movie Oh, my so gosh. You got me so nervous <laughs> for a second. I was like, oh, it's going to be a real uphill battle for this episode. But no, good. I'm so happy to hear this. Amy, this is one of my favorite movies. And rewatching it just got me thinking about how this movie is held up on a pedestal. You know, truly, people talk about this movie like, oh, I want to make it like Die Hard. How can we make it like Die Hard? What, what was the secret sauce here? And in doing my research and rewatching it, I'm realizing that it wasn't just one thing. It wasn't just Bruce Willis. It wasn't just John McTiernan. It wasn't just Michael Kamen. It wasn't just the writers or even Joel Silver. Every one of them kind of brought their best pieces of themselves to this pot and made this amazing stew. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. They all had one element that they could build this perfect 
thing. And, and I think in looking at it like that, I was like, it really is impressive that this vision got to the screen because it really wasn't on track to be this good. No, I mean, to talk even about like how defining this movie is as an action film, when Die Hard was pitched around town, it was pitched as, quote, Rambo in an office building. And then in a post-Die Hard world, yes, everything is Die Hard. Die Hard in a, in a plane, Die Hard on a boat, Die Hard in a bus. It took over the Rambo in an office building part and just became its own thing on its own. I mean, the Die Hard on a bus was even directed by the director of photography, Jean Dumont. Then we called it Speed, and we talked about it a lot on this podcast. But it's, well, it's everything. To me, this film is just what I want in an action movie. It's a hero who looks like my type of action hero. He's just a strong version of a normal person. It's beautifully shot. It's gorgeous. The stunts are practical and real. When there's glass breaking, things are actually breaking. When there's explosions, things are actually exploding. Fires are fires. Everything is real and tactile. And then the script, there's no wasted scene. There's no wasted line. Everything is funny. When you ask me what I would do to make this movie more perfect, I don't know if I could say anything. I just want to like acknowledge something, that the year is 19. 19- 88. And up until this point, what you said, like this idea of Rambo in an office building, people hadn't seen a hero like John McClane yet. Like John McClane or Bruce Willis isn't even ripped like our action heroes are. He's not Stallone. He's not Schwarzenegger. He's got a normal body. I wouldn't even say he's strong as much as he is truly just an average guy. If you see him in the street, you wouldn't think like, oh shit, this guy's going to, you know, kick my ass. On top of that, it's a hero who I would argue spends the first 20 minutes of the hostage situation calling for help. When he is foiled calling for help, then he has to step into it, right? Like, we've never seen that before. Like, that's revolutionary. Like, Rambo's getting on that, you know, walkie-talkie being like, you just fucked with your worst nightmare. You know, and he's like, get me the cops. Come, come here. I need help. We need help. Now we have so many everyman heroes that it must have just been mind-blowing to see a character like this on screen. Well, yeah, I mean, it feels cyclical. Like that panic in John McClane's voice when he's calling help, when he's calling 911, and they're just like, sir, this is a prank call and the frustration you hear in him. Attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. No fucking shit, lady! Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? That is a man who is angry and desperate sounding. And yet, like, when he talks about this movie at the time in interviews about, like, how what he wanted to bring to John McClane, it is exactly what I do feel like I need to hear more action movies and action movie stars saying today. It's not about a superhero. It's not about a... A guy who's invincible. It's about a guy who's uh, just the opposite of that. A guy who's very uh, vulnerable. And uh, I think people really respond to that. There are a lot of payoffs um, in, uh, you know, the film for the audience, I think. And uh, I think Die Hard really satisfies a sense of justice for, uh, you know, know, for the average guy. Because you're right. These things go in cycles. We have the swole Rambos seeding ground to the John McClane's. And now we're in, I th- I would say, another period of swole. And I'm ready to see to anybody who's not Liam Neeson. Because we have had our, like, normal action hero guys, but they're all Liam Neeson. I want somebody who, like, has Liam Neeson's body but isn't bulletproof. 
Because John McClane, <laughs> like, think about what happens to his body here. That white wife beater he's wearing, it's white for like five minutes. That it's covered in like blood, ash, smoke. His feet are like absolutely unusable. His knees don't even work. Like this is a guy who the bullets hit. He's not immortal. And that is what I want, that sense of danger. Like he could get hurt. Well, I think what's really interesting about this character, in addition to his lack of wanting to be a hero, is how they make you sympathize with him by how little protection he has on his body. He loses clothes throughout the film. And he doesn't lose clothes in like a a macho way. Like, you know, he gets caught in a moment where he happens to be without shoes. And then, you know, he's trying to tie off wounds so he loses his shirt. Like, there is something about it where you feel those shards of glass going into his feet. And by the way, did you know the whole thing about the glass? That You know, this this moment in the film when they find out, they know that he's barefoot. And Hans tells his cronies, like, shoot the glass! And they start shooting the glass, and he starts running through the glass. You're on the edge of your seat because you know what that would feel like to run over glass. Anyone who stepped on a Lego, think of that times a million, you know. But that glass, like you said, is real. And it was actually manufactured by a company that made beautiful glass panes, but they wanted it to look even more uh, shiny. So when the lights of the production went through it, it had a little bit more of a um, a flare. The glass is essentially a character in this movie because they're like, oh, regular glass won't look good enough. We need this glass to look as sharp and shiny as possible. And I think that makes that whole sequence just all the more visceral. Well, my favorite thing about the shoot the glass scene is the tension you see in how they set up watching all of the glass break around him before they even have the brainstorm. Like John McTiernan and Jean DeBot really show you how much glass there is in this room. They start showing it shatter. They show you uh, Hans's realization of what you can do with the glass if you start aiming for it on purpose. And and then there's that buildup where Hans is like yelling at his at his like beloved most favorite German to shoot the glass. And I love the order in which he does it. Carl, she's Stimfenster. Shoot the glass. I love that he tries German. The guy's like, I don't understand German. And then he gives up and has to scream it in English. He has to scream it in English at his own German friend. And I heard that the ironic joke of this is that one theory uh, is that like uh, Hans Gruber's German is so bad because Alan Rickman's German is not German since he's not German. uh, That like it just doesn't even sound like he's saying shoot the glass in German anyways. But I just love like kind of the dramatic inversion of that. Like he's got to scream it in English so that we understand, even if it doesn't logically make sense, it does perfectly make sense in the film, in the buildup of how this works. I love that. They're not going to use subtitles. That's one thing that Joel Silver will not use, (laughs) you know, regardless of all the foreign villains and every one of those movies that he's made that I love. Very rarely, even Jet Li doesn't get subtitles in Lethal Weapon 4. Oh God, the travesty of that. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I made the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. 
Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Tension. This movie is truly a study of tension, and they do it with camera work and, and score. I mean, the first time we see the title sequence, there's no music. You just see the clang of metal and die hard. The title fills the screen, but there's no music there. And there's no music in this movie, no score, I should say, for 20 minutes, because we do have that great um, Run DMC Christmas song before that. But the first time you hear score is when Holly and John are together, and then that score blends right into the Beethoven score, which is the theme of our villains. And I think that this movie does a great job of letting air out, pulling air in, letting air out, pulling air in. And and again, they do that with the spaces that you're in as well. So you constantly are feeling, I think, confined and then, okay, I can breathe again. And I think the best moment of that in this whole film is when McLean has his first cigarette break, when he sits down to light up a smoke. It's We've basically waited 20 minutes for violence to happen. Then there's like 20 minutes of violence. And then there is just a dead moment where the audience can kind of catch their breath. And this whole movie, I think, is really masterful at not putting everything on McLean to carry it. it the, the way it's shot, the way it's visualized, that tension really makes this movie and I think actually elevates Bruce Willis's performance, too, because you really are in his headspace. Well, yeah. And what's funny about that is that a lot of that wasn't planned. You know, like Bruce Willis is making this movie at the beginning as he's shooting Moonlighting. They don't have him for that much, especially at the start. And so having this movie underway with their actor not getting any sleep because he's making two things at once makes them start to brainstorm stuff like, well, we don't have Bruce. Uh, Let's write a scene for Holly and Hans Gruber, where like Holly comes out and tells them that they, you know, need to give a couch to the pregnant woman. And like Holly... Holly gets to stand up a little bit and be like, this is why I'm a boss. This is why I'm a powerful exec. That, you know, like throughout the whole course of filming, Joel Silver was like, we really need to have a confrontation scene between John McClane and Hans Gruber before they kill each other to the death, before they fight each other to the death. What can we do? And then on set, like somebody asks Alan Rickman kind of casually what his American accent sounds like. And that gives them the brainstorm to come up with this scene where he like pretends to be a normal diehard guy. See, I heard this actually in a different way. And there's a this is a, what you get on a movie that is incredibly successful. Everyone wants to tell you what they did and how it all came about. The story that I heard was that Alan Rickman was just telling stories and doing a bunch of different voices. And they overheard him doing like this fake California accent. And that was like a light bulb moment where they're like, holy shit. It was more overhearing than brainstorming. You're right. Yeah. Like it was, yeah, it wasn't like, can he do this so we can write the scene? It's just, they realized it. And, and, and I mean, when you listen to it here, when you listen to like Alan talking. Please, God, no, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. No, no, don't kill me, please. No, please. Don't kill me, don't kill me, please. Whoa, please, whoa, please, whoa, please, relax. Please. Relax. I'm not going to hurt you. You can understand when you hear that why he told them, 
Listen, I would not say I do a good American accent. I would only say I do a good Californian accent, something that's more like a a parody of Californians. But where I'm trying to get to is like, they came up with that idea in the middle of shooting. And then somebody was like, wait, we can't do that because hasn't hasn't John McClane already seen Hans shoot Takagi, like you were saying. Right, and then in somebody the was like, Yeah, and they're like, but actually he hasn't shot Takagi yet in the filming. We're filming that tomorrow. And so they just on the fly rearranged the filming of that sequence to make it clear that he didn't see him so that they could have that scene. Well, yeah, basically, they readjusted the set. basically they're just kind of coming up with this all the time. They're like reinventing yeah. it all the time. They readjusted the set to move it six feet away. So John McClane would see the assassination of Takagi, but never get eyes on who shot him. And I love that idea because he doesn't quite know. It allows you to kind of also lean in with him because I think a lot of the camera work in this movie is like detective camera work. Like you're over his shoulder. You're watching him piece together things because he's by himself. He can't talk to too many people. When he does talk to Al Powell, he has to talk in code. And it does make the movie really great because It allows both of these characters to suss each other out. It allows you to see that John McClane is smart, even though he's desperate. And also, it gives Hans Gruber a little bit of ammunition to foil him, right? Because he doesn't have it. And then once, that's like the domino that starts clicking. And I, I read this thing about the movie, and I wanted to pitch it to you, which is, you know, John McClane in this movie is not the protagonist. People get that term confused. John McClane in this movie is the antagonist. A protagonist gets the ball rolling. And Hans Gruber is the one getting the ball rolling. He is doing this heist. And as an audience, we kind of want to see him do this heist. And John McClane is the antagonist in that plan. He's also the hero, but the hero doesn't have to be the um, protagonist. And I started to think about like, it's like high noon in a way, right? Like, There's a plan going on, and this person is subverting the plan. So I do think it's really interesting about the villain, because we actually care about the villain's plan. We actually are connected to Hans Gruber in a a little bit. So when they do have this head-to-head, Hans Gruber's plan, yes, is to kill these people, but I think we're kind of impressed by what he's doing. Like, it doesn't seem malicious. Like, him eating a sandwich and talking you know, to this crew of hostages trapped in this floor. Like there's an energy to him that's not mustache twirly. It's incredibly smart. It's it's a you still want John McClane to, you know, to get him at the end, but I do think that we have two people that we're rooting for. And I think that makes a big difference in this film. Well, it's an interesting use of how to do the heist film structure, right? Because often I feel like heist films can be a little bit like Goldilocks. Either they lay out everything that's going to happen and then you just watch it unspool or they don't tell you what's going to happen. And then you're sort of like, okay, I guess they magically pulled all of that off. And you just sort of like, well, okay, that clicks into place. But Hans Gruber is always giving you hints that he knows exactly what's going on without telling you the whole story. He's like, cops are great. We are expecting the cops. What we're waiting for is the FBI. Like he's telling you this. You expect a miracle? I give you the FBI. I. Exactly. I love it. I love it. It's exactly. such a great, and it's like he's two steps ahead. Right. I mean, that's, and you yeah. trust that he's two steps ahead as the audience. You trust that he's there and it lets you trust in the plan because you're always sure that he does have a plan and it doesn't feel like reactive and it doesn't feel magical. And it also feels fueled by his ego just a little bit. Like that part where Holly is like, you're nothing but a common thief. And he's like, no, I am an exceptional thief. Yes. And I love that there is nothing really personal to this 
relationship between John McClane and Hans Gruber. The real kind of like I want him dead tension is between John and Carl because John killed Carl's brother. Like that's the vendetta. At, at a certain point, Hans Gruber is like losing control and I think then he wants him dead. But there isn't like a a want to kill him as much as just contain him, right? And I think that there's like, originally Hans was supposed to be all decked out with like, you know, terrorist equipment. And it was Alan Rickman who said, well, why would I do that? I have all my goons. Like, I don't need that. Let me dress nicely, right? And and that moment when he comes onto frame, and this movie is like all about framing, you know, John McClane is often on the left side of camera, which is very much like high noon, you know, that that's like a side of weakness, and when we first meet Hans Gruber, he's center. He almost takes up all of frame, you know, boom, he's right there. And and this idea of him in this power suit, a suit as good as Takagi, this man who is running this corporation, it just, I don't think that we've seen that. Like there's something really appealing about that character. And I think in a weird way, if you look at like the social implications of it too, like Takagi is Japanese, this is a Japanese company. At this point in America, the Japanese are buying a lot of American landmarks, whether it's like Radio City Music Hall and things like that. So there's a little bit of this anti-Japanese sentiment. And so I think even probably from an audience's perspective at that point, they're excited to see, oh yeah, all right, we're we're even though he's German <laughs> and he's not, you know, but we're taking it back. They don't deserve that, right? That, that idea, you know. I mean, I think it's 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 xenophobic of hundred percent. It's but there is like a yeah, little bit of energy of there too. The American too. cowboy versus the villains of World War Two. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. No wonder he keeps calling him John Wayne. But I also like that Bruce Willis calls himself Roy Rogers, the the TV version of John Wayne. Because at that point, he is the TV guy. No, totally. I went down like kind of a rabbit hole being like, when did Roy Rogers say yippee-ki-yay? And, and right. I was like, was it in that Get Along Little Doggy song? So I was like pulling that to hear if that's where he stole the line from. But then when I listen to that, I'm like, that's not quite yippee ki And then I found out that he says it maybe sort of closer in this one song, I'm an old cowhand from the Rio Grande. Yippee-i-yo-ki-yay, But even then, I feel like John McClane made this line his own. And then when he tried to make other lines like Geronimo, it didn't quite work out. Like, that's the one that worked. We stuck with the yippee ki We stuck with, like... That one. They they argued over it, right? Because it was sort of this idea that like um they wanted it to be yippee taye, right? That yippee taye, and they shot them both. And this yippee kaye sounded better, which I love because it was sort of this fight on set. Like, what sounds the best? <laughs> you Is know? it am I crazy that in my memory I always thought it was yippee kaye? I always added like an extra syllable. I wouldn't even know. I could because I'd never I only know it from this movie. Like, that's where yeah. my first introduction of it is. I mean, I think I'm taking it from this movie. I think I just extended it. I just oh, okay. I, I extended it the way they extend the laugh about yippee ki What was it you said to me before? yippee ki motherfucker. Ha, 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 ha.
trails, Hans. But I want to kind of jump to like this casting that we're talking about, about like the Japanese company, about these villains. I mean, one thing that audiences were really aware of when they saw this movie in 1988 was actually the actor playing Carl, was actually like Alexander Godunov, the blonde, you know, the giant, yes. the giant blonde, mm-hmm. because he had been in the newspapers a lot for like the last yes. 10 years. Basically, his story was that Godunov was a dancer with the Bolshoi, the Bolshoi in in uh, Russia. And he wound up coming here to New York with the Bolshoi to dance. He'd been best friends with Mikhail Baryshnikov since he was like a little kid. I think they were friends going back to when they were like nine years old. Uh, he shows up in New York in 1979 with the Bolshoi to dance. And with the help of Carter, he defects from Russia. He's like, I want to be an American. He was married to a Russian ballerina at the time. And then this became like a whole national scandal for a few days where like the KGB put his wife on a plane headed back to Moscow. And then like everybody got involved being like, hold on, don't let the plane leave the tarmac. Does he want his wife back? Does his wife want to go to Moscow? What does she want? Is she going to defect? And at the end of three days of the standoff, his wife was like, I want to go back to Moscow. So she goes back to Moscow and they split up and then Godunov starts dating Jacqueline Bissett and like being like kind of this like hunk of the tabloids for a while. But this was a huge deal. At the time, like even back home in Russia, they made a movie about it called Flight 222, where it's told from the wife's point of view, like she wants to get back, but the evil Americans are holding her here. But he was the symbol for a moment of like famous blonde political figure, somebody who might actually be conceivably, you know, related to the part of a group being like, release these prisoners and here's what's going on. You know, somebody who represented all of that baggage at the time. Well, you know, what's interesting about him, too, is obviously he has this amazing story that uh, that we're familiar with in the news, but he also happens to attach himself to, or at least in my mind, two big movies of that time, which is like Witness and The Money Pit. Like I remember him from these films and I remember him being a very big presence in these films. And then Die Hard, like that run of three films is really kind of impressive because the fact that he becomes sort of an action star here, you know, he looks so ready for it. And I think because he could move so well at the ballet, like he could do these stunt sequences that were all, like you said, all practical. And it's so funny to think of this, you know, beautiful ballet dancer becoming this, like, you are what we envision a killing machine to be. Yeah. I mean, it must've been so strange because we had that kind of run of like bad guys of the eighties who just happened to be handsome blonde men from other countries being like, you think I look evil? Okay. Yeah. I get. I just I look like me. This is my hair. This is what I look like. I'm not trying to look evil, but you just think I look evil. And I I do wonder how strange that would be like defecting from your home country, being an enemy there, adopting to life here, having all of the spotlight on you, but also people just think you look evil and they think your country is evil and you don't want to live there either, but your wife is there and then you guys have added It seems like a lot to have on your shoulders. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. 
but there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, I also want to point out that, you know, this movie, again, zigs when you think it's going to zag. Instead of just being, you know, this German killer, the only reason why he is so violent is because his brother was killed, right? We talked about this idea, like this is like the push-pull between him and McLean. And it gives him a reason to be so mad. It's vengeance, right? And I think the same thing for Hans Gruber. Like Hans Gruber isn't a guy that's yelling like, Mach schnell, no, no. You know, he's like, he is developed. And here's a movie where we have three very prominent uh, black actors in this movie who are smart, savvy, and really going against some of the stereotypes that you would see in action movies of this time. These characters were added and given a little bit more air because of uh, Bruce Willis's availability. And each one of them, I think, become these really memorable characters around the film. I mean, Reginald Vell Johnson, it was supposed to be Gene Hackman. I guess at the last second, that kind of fell through and they gave it to an unknown actor. And he is, I think, is a wonderful performance here. Yeah, uh, he has you know, it's so much heart. So much heart. I mean, talk about somebody who feels human. It's really interesting, though, too. I was, you know, just thinking about his downside or his deficit, uh, you know. You mean this? I shot a kid. He was 13 years old. Oh, it was dark. I couldn't see him. He had a ray gun look real enough. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. You know, that's a pretty fucking shocking yeah. thing. And, you know, and and his arc in a weird way is that he gets his masculinity back. Like he like that look on his face is one of the best. I think a great silent performance when he kills Alexander Goodenough at the end when, you know, that final pop up, that kind of scary movie pop up. And it, the camera goes up on his gun and his revolver. And like, that's the first time he's pulled a gun since he's been on a desk job. John McClane or this experience allowed him to become a man again. And it, but what we're saying about that is a little complicated too. It's a little perverse. I, it's like, it's a yeah. Christmas miracle that this cop is killing again. Congrats. Yes, like, thank like, God. Thank God this cop is now more comfortable killing people. And, you know, and again, I love this character. I don't want to like linger there. And I think it works for the plot and everything. But it is it is an interesting thing that he killed a child. <laughs> he's a, he's our hero. And we are excited for him to, st- to finally start killing again. OK, well, then uh, I want to posit this. What if then this character, Al, his his punishment, his purgatory is then to live forever on as a cop surrounded by annoying kids that he cannot kill. Bruce, I'm outnumbered here. I don't want to get me paid on this uniform. Hi, guys. Well, can I do that? Maybe that is justice. Well, definitely, uh, there's no justice with Robot Urkel. Uh, you know, I think Robot Urkel, no one, no one deserves that. Um, But I do, I love these characters and I love that, you know, this movie also takes place in a few different worlds in the sense that we have the action of the movie, the centerpiece of the film being John McClane first terrorist, right? That's a movie. But then when you bring in the police, 
right? The and the FBI were looking at it through a different lens. How how the cops are incompetent, how the FBI, like when the two Johnsons go in, uh, which I love those two guys, when the two Johnsons go in, the FBI guys. You I know, love they, that little line, not related. Like not that's related. Just, those are the bits that make me feel like the script oh, was really combed over so well. Well, that's like apparently like Joel Silver on set just pitching lines, you know, I think just like zhuzhing the characters. But when the FBI's plan is, well, we'll kill like a 25% of the hostages, but we'll get our guy. Like this this idea of like, well, that's okay. That's a reasonable thing. It's making a comment about Vietnam. It's making a comment about a lot of different stuff. So we're looking at it through that lens, the police being inefficient or being brutal lens. And then we're looking at it through, and I think this is so revolutionary, media and how media takes over an event and how media can corrupt an event. And I was watching that. And I was like, that's really fascinating. And the idea, and I love uh, William Atherton, villain from Ghostbusters, our like intrepid reporter who gets this call. You see that he's like trying to find a story. He's one of these local news guys. He goes out there and he's trying to get this story and we feel for him. He's a dick, but he goes, you know, to like Holly McLean's house, threatens their nanny uh, to, you know, call the INS on them. And that's then, so you know, solo and then puts her children on screen but i was thinking like very rarely do we have a you know a movie that interacts with the outside world we're watching all these superhero movies we don't get to see these other perspectives of an event like of yes if this building is blowing up shit's going on like other people are talking about it and we do get to live and again maybe this is because of bruce willis maybe this is because of how it was written we get to live in three unique worlds where we're critiquing media, we're critiquing the police. like, And I think that makes the movie incredibly more interesting than the Rambo approach of just one man can solve this problem. Well, and yeah, watching it feels it, like yeah. the movie is basically putting this divide in a nightmare situation. They're saying like, when stuff really goes down, there's going to be the real men. And then there's going to be the guys who just think they're the real men. You know, and the guys who just think like they're the real men are like the cops, are the FBI, are the newscaster. They're, they're, you know, the slick uh, executive. They're like Harp Buckner being like, hey, hey, toots, I got this. I'll solve this sprickensy talk. What are you doing? I'm tired of sitting here waiting to see who gets us killed first, them or your husband. What are you going to do? Hey, babe, I negotiate million dollar deals for breakfast. I think I can handle this Euro trash. Hey. Frequency talk, huh? All of those guys are acting like they know what's going on. There's even a clip on the television news of a guy who's written a book about hostages. He knows everything that's happening there. Hostage terrorist, terrorist hostage, a study in duality. Dr. Hasseldorf, what can we expect in the next few hours? Well, Gail, by this time, the hostages should be going through the early stages of the Helsinki syndrome. As in Helsinki, Sweden. Finland. Basically, it's when the hostages and the terrorists go through a sort of psychological transference and a projection of dependency. And then, of course, as they're playing that clip, you realize that this guy has no idea what's going on. Nobody is bonding at all to Hans Gruber. And they're dragging out, you know, Sprechensee taught guy's corpse at that moment. And so it's this world of like expertise versus McLean, which is sort of where I do get a little twinge of nervousness in there. It's like an, it's an anti-expert movie. It's like you can either be the guy on the ground or you can be the people who are just talking about something and don't actually experience it. But it's also this idea of control, right? I think that there's something really interesting at the center of this movie. 
The centerpiece of the movie takes place in this, was it, the 32nd floor? I'm, I'm sure I'm off on that. The 30th, where, I think, yeah. The 30th floor, where we, you know, see this un- ornate, beautiful, I, I don't even know what you would call it, because it's not a lobby. It, it's this, this, I don't even know how it exists. It's five stories, by the way. You know, it's created five stories and was built on a, st- a soundstage. It doesn't exist in the actual uh, building. But they have a recreation of falling water, in the centerpiece of this area where the uh, hostages are being held. And so hear me out on my overanalyzation of this. Uh, Here is a Japanese company trying to contain this outdoor structure indoors, right? Here is this man, Ellis, trying to equate, like, I do business deals so I can game the system here. I can get myself out and I'll serve up this guy. Here is Hans Gruber going, I'm smarter than everyone. And because I'm smart and I'm trying to outgame you, I'm not even really worried about this other guy. I'm I'm smarter than it, right? Takagi even risks his life going, I don't have the code. They'll never kill me if I'm being, a boom, dead. Like They're out for themselves. But they also are trying to control things that they have no control over. These are all people who think that they have absolute control. I think in most action movies at the time, you want to be the guy who's like, I shoot first and ask questions later. But here, our heroes are, I make my move based on what is going on. And I think that it is similar to Gary Cooper and High Noon. It's like, you know, it's like, I'm going to be smart about this. Like smart is a big deal in this movie. Right. Like, are you listening closely enough, not just to the words that people are saying, but the logic underneath it, the motivation between it? Like when Hans Gruber is saying, yeah, 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 yeah. You can get all these hostages out if you release these prisoners. I have comrades in arms around the world languishing in prison. The American State Department enjoys rattling its saber for its own ends. Now I can rattle it for me. The following people are to be released from their captors. In Northern Ireland, the seven members of the new Provo Front. In Canada, the five imprisoned leaders of Liberté de Québec. In Sri Lanka, the nine members of the Asian Dawn. What the fuck? I read about them in Time magazine. It's really only John McClane and an Al who like hear through it and they're like, does that make sense? Like, they're just taking down names. Why are they just taking down these names and acting like Hans is telling us the straight up truth? And so there's that extra level of like thought, attention, not just reaction, which is pretty slick for a guy who like John McClane's tattoo on his biceps is a a skull head with a bow tie and a top hat. I don't know what that means to him, but you know, but it's a pretty dumb tattoo. It was in the time, it was in the time where you didn't have to cover up your tattoos for legal (laughs) reasons in movies. And that's probably a perfect one for a guy who's a bouncer in uh, New Jersey. You know, and it's so funny to think about how this character got bastardized, right? Because at the end, I think Die Hard, one of these diehards, I, I could barely get through the last one. Like he's like on the he's on the wing of like a fighter jet. You know, like it's they've lost the humanity of this character. We don't have to get into all of that, but you know, it is really interesting how far a movie could go because I think that when you're looking at John McTiernan, he's looking at this movie as a Shakespearean tale. Like he's looking at this movie in a much larger scope, the way that it's scored. I mean, I know I mentioned it earlier, but the Beethoven soundtrack, which I love, by the way, Hans Gruber, uh, like hums his own 
song. It makes this movie more substantial because that music requires you to be like, what deserves this kind of score? Like, like your dumb action movie is going to be scored by Beethoven? And it works because the way McTiernan shoots it is grand and it's big. And there are all these like these ideas here that it's not just an action movie. It's something epic in scope. It's a battle of two, these two men. It, it is Davy and Goliath in, I guess, in modern media. Like that's something that we, I think we've always responded to, this idea of the good guy winning. And we have never seen it at this point like this. I mean, one thing that I think is really funny about the Ode to Joy of it all is, you know, when Beethoven released the Ninth Symphony, people were like, well, that Ode to Joy part, that's too much. We don't like it. <laughs> it's a, it's only become like a classic in our era too, you know, where we're like, well, we like the big, make it big, make it big, make give us explosions, give us Jan Dubon, just like making stuff blow up left and right behind John McClane. Who cares if you see his face? It just has to look awesome. You know, it's all about that swell of feeling, unabashed bigness. And I will also say that like Michael Kamen's score, which is the Ninth Symphony, is harsher. It has a darker edge to it. Like a, it's like Beethoven's it's Ninth with yeah. a chip on its shoulder, right? It has like, yeah. yeah, it's like, it's not as joyful, but it, you know, and I think it's, it's mixing it, these two themes. Yeah, it's like, well, here you can hear it. Like underneath here, the kind of darker version. Due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they are about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. And you don't even hear it as the full joy expression until the electromagnetic lock opens and, and Hans gets his money. And then it is an ode to his joy. He's like, oh, I'm so happy. Oh, I finally got way- my money. And, and part of why I pulled the clip of him whistling is because it made me laugh because I just saw somebody, I think, rip it off really well, which was I rewatched Crank 2 during Thanksgiving oh, love it. because, like, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, American Cinematheque here in L.A. did a thing called Cranksgiving where they showed Crank 1 and Crank 2. Love and there's it. a bit in Crank 2 right at the beginning where they're playing the theme as Jason Statham is creeping around and he just starts whistling it himself as though he can hear the theme music. And it made me burst out laughing. And so if that is a theft from this movie, I'll take it. I also do want to say Crank 2, wow, those jokes do not hold up in 2022. The action is still amazing, but oh my God, it's like it's like that movie wrote itself to get canceled in the future. Dear God. <laughs> I know, there's there are some rough, rough things there. I do also want to talk about Bonnie Bedelia, who is phenomenal in this movie. And I think it, again, 1988. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a woman who is confident enough in her own devices to be like, I have an amazing job opportunity. It's going to help my family. I want to go there and I want to, I want to do this thing. And she leaves her husband, not because he's a drunk, not because he's addicted to his job, but because, and this is all going to come back in a second. He doesn't listen to her. And the one thing that he does to succeed in this movie is he listens to everything else. And I think this movie is about his redemption, not as a action hero, not that he saved the day, but he listened. 
And I think that he wasn't listening to his wife. He let her get away. And you see that in the beginning. Like, he's very open to Argyle, this guy I just met, where he's like, Argyle's like, well, you didn't think she was going to make it. She was going to come back home. He's like, yeah. This idea that, like, he gets his ego out of the way a little bit over this. That, like, that's his arc or that's his, like, little bit of his his growth in this movie is that he doesn't know it all. He yeah, doesn't like, try to solve it all. They have that big fight right at the beginning where he's like hassling her for changing her name back to Gennaro, getting rid of his Completely last name. improvised. I guess you didn't miss my name though, huh? Except maybe when you're signing checks. Since when did you start using Ms. Gennaro? It's a Japanese company. They figure a married woman's got You are a married woman, Holly. You're married to me. We're going to have this conversation again. We did this in July. We never finished this conversation in July. I had to take it. Right. No matter what the consequences, no matter what it did to our marriage, you had to take it. It didn't do anything to our marriage except maybe change your idea of what our marriage should be. I think you have a clue as to what my idea of our marriage should be. I know exactly what your idea of our marriage should be. I mean, when she says, I know what kind of marriage you want, you know, she really is being like, you just want me what? Like cooking? You know, it, it's, it is kind of like, are you a throwback guy or are you a guy of the 80s? And again, what we know about John McClane is very little. You know, he's not like super cop. He just seems to me like a regular cop. Like he's like, I got a bunch of unsolved cases. Like he's not doing anything really good. He's just, you know, he's a fine cop, right? Like he's selfish. And this movie is about him being, being not selfish. And, and what you watch with, with uh, Bonnie Bedelia's character, Holly Gennaro, Holly McLean, uh, is that she is constantly looking out for her team, whether it's her pregnant secretary who's working. By the way, the dusk of this movie is so crazy. Like McLean seems to be landing in the day, but the party is going on simultaneously at the night. But then it, the timing of that first couple of minutes, I'm like, wow, I don't know what the, the sun is setting. It's coming down. It's, her secretary it's LA goes, when there's no traffic on the holidays. You yes. From LAX to Century City in no time. She sends, you know, she sends Ellis away. Uh, she's like, you also see that she wants to kind of reconcile with her husband. She doesn't want to like brag to him that, you know, she's doing so well. She's not trying to rub it in her face. She is taking care. Like she steps up into a power position. She is working on the party's eve. She's only shown truly in positions of power. You know, she's not a damsel in distress. Yes, there is a moment where she is, you know, she's almost working on her own front. She's seeing things like when Carl is pissed, she's like, I know that something good is happening. Only the only man who can make somebody that pissed is John McClane. And I love that she's trying to figure things out for him as well. And I think that that makes this movie yet again, an elevated thing. No one is truly, he's not rescuing anyone per se. He's just trying to orchestrate things. Right. And I think that that, I think it makes the movie way more interesting. Well, that line she has, you know, like that nobody can frustrate somebody or irritate him. Like, like John, I find that sort of sentiment romantic because it's saying the thing that annoys me about the person I'm in love with, the thing that might even be why I kind of want to leave them is also a quality of theirs that I can admire. You know, I I find it really romantic in relationships where you're like, this is your flaw. So it goes. Okay. I understand your flaw. I see it. Like, and I will either like accept it, work with it, whatever, but like to recognize somebody for their negative traits and smile about it. I do find that oddly romantic 
I also want to say how much I love just like the camera work in the shot where we see Holly for the first time, where it's like you're behind Takagi. He's welcoming the people at his party. You see this giant crowd shot and then an elevator door open and you just kind of watch her as the shot's going on, like come out of the elevator, exit, walk around, go back to work. And, you know, she just sort of subtly pops in this like gigantic framing with like tons of extras. I just adore that way of like drawing attention to her. Also, wait, while I'm talking about the scene, I do want to talk a second about like James Shigeta who plays Takagi because this guy has a, a history that I just think is so interesting. I mean, he's a guy who's been, you know, he was born in Hawaii and he was acting in American movies since like the 50s or 60s. He was in a movie where he played Elvis's best friend in Hawaii and they were like guys who ran a pilot, a helicopter pilot company together. He gets the very last line in this clip right here. Is this any way to run an airline? It's Elvis, Hawaiian style, running wild as a copter flyboy with more co-pilots than he can handle. All right, girls. Follow me inside and I'll check out your qualifications. What would you put the ad in, Playboy? And also, not only that, but there was a long time, like in the 60s, where James Shigeta was called the Frank Sinatra of Japan because he had the most beautiful singing voice. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Take a listen to it here. This is a song called... We speak the same language. I come from here. You come from there. Yet I would swear we've known each other before. Though I suspect you're somewhat smarter than I am. We've got what the French call rapport. Yeah, man, I'm saying you pop on some Shigeta while you're cruising. And I'm also going to use that as a transition to talk about what we said we would at the beginning, the Frank Sinatra of it all. Yes, I love this. Okay, so here is why this movie was offered to Frank Sinatra. It is because technically Die Hard is a sequel to a 1966 Frank Sinatra movie. It's called The Detective. It's based on a book written by Roderick Thorpe. And it's about this guy. His name is Joe Leland in this series where he's like on the case of this murder where he found this dude who was dead with his penis severed. And this cop played by Frank Sinatra, this is like an older Frank Sinatra, 66 Frank Sinatra, uh, and thinks that the guy who cut off the penis is uh, the roommate of this man, this like mentally unstable guy named Felix Tesla, a villain name that sounds, you know, like it could really be used today. Here's a clip of Sinatra just in the trailer. The detective gives full play to Sinatra's fabulous talents in what has to be one of the year's most dynamic roles. What's that? Agitators. They do not like living in garbage cans. Joe, that's that's none of our business. That's right, it's none of our business. Somebody doesn't do something about those garbage cans, you're going to see that goddamnest explosion. You're going to tear this nation right down the middle. And I also just have to play this tiny little moment from when he's interrogating Felix. He wasn't nice, was he? Now, come on, Tommy, am I wrong? Was he nice? He was a bitch! A bitch. Face it, Felix, face no. it! And you know in that movie, you know who's an extra in it? Who? Bruce Willis. No. He walks by Frank Sinatra in the background of that movie. No! He That's was what I had extra work all the way back then? That's, I mean, wow. I found it to be unbelievable, but... Uh, I am pretty sure. Sh- Let me make sure I'm right on this. No, no, no. Let's just print the legend. Print the okay. legend. Print the All legend. Right. Great. I'll print the legend. <laughs> yeah. Now, Thorpe, who wrote this book, 
actually has like a good background in crime. He was a private detective. He was a crime reporter here in LA. He did like this 21 point part series on cocaine traffic. So he is a guy who knows what he's talking about when it comes to law enforcement, which I think really adds to like the credibility of what we see here in this movie is it's grounded in a guy who knew what he was saying, even though the movie is very, very different from the book. The sequel that he writes to the detective, he doesn't write it until like 1979. It's called Nothing Lasts Forever. That is the book that becomes Die Hard. And what I thought was so funny is like it opens with, you know, his detective, still called Leland, driving um, in this cab with like the the character who's going to become Argyle. And the very second page of the book has this line, quote, Leland realized the driver was talking about severed penises. So he's just like obsessed with this idea of people getting their dicks cut off, which does not make it into this Jackson of it all. One of the major differences of the book is that it's like, very, very, very dark at the ending because instead of trying to save his wife, it's actually McLean's daughter. Like this is an older version of this character. He's like in his 60s in the book. It's his daughter who's in the office building. His daughter has actually gotten up to some shady stuff. And the movie ends with his daughter falling out of the window along with the villain and dying as he like holds onto her watch band. So that's very, 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 very sad. Uh, When they decide to adapt it in the 80s, they of course made it happier but they were contractually obligated to offer it to Frank Sinatra because he had been in the first one. And Frank Sinatra thankfully was like, I'm too old for this. Absolutely not. And then they finally had the idea to make John McClane young to like age him down and make this like a very fun book. I mean, the idea that it could have been Frank Sinatra is amazing. Like, and that's, and that's kind of the trick here is like, you needed every piece of this equation to come in. You needed a stunt coordinator that went in for his stunt meeting going, I want to talk about character. You know, you need John McTiernan who's like, I'm going to use the way that I shoot this. Like he shoots a a lot of these things like these, I think it's called like triangular shooting in a way, like where the camera moves in a triangle. So it kind of constantly puts you in this, uh, like who has power? Where is it wielding from? You know, these, the shots that he uses, the the way that this movie looks, you know, before uh, I had like, or Letterbox was in vogue, uh, you know, watch this movie and it looked cramped on a TV. It needed to be like, you know, projected big. It wanted to be big, you know, and this, and for the, I think for the small moments to work, it, it needed someone like Alan Rickman who could do an American accent. It needed Michael Kamen. It needed every one of these pieces. I mean, hearing you talk about this now, a little line that I read on Wikipedia does make sense, which is quote, the film has been a source of inspiration for filmmakers, including Lexi Alexander, Darren Aronofsky, Brad Bird, Joe Carnahan, Gareth Evans, Barry Jenkins, Joe Lynch, Paul Shear, Brian uh, Taylor, that's Craig, Dan Trachtenberg, Colin Trevorrow, and Paul W.S. Wait, are you, not, are you joking? Or that was, no, I'm really you're on that. the Wikipedia for this. That's amazing. <laughs> you didn't know that? I did not know that. <laughs> well, hilarious. congratulations. You're right in between Joe Lynch, a filmmaker I really like. And Brian Taylor, who did Crank 2. Yeah, my gosh. I found this interview with Bruce Willis from 1988, where he is, you know, maybe open to doing Die Hard sequels, not committed to the fact that that might be a major part of his future. I may do other action films. I don't know. I, I, um... You may do a sequel to this one. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Uh, Somebody had that idea over the past couple days, I think. Oh, Bruce, what the future holds for you makes me so sad. Well, you know, Bruce Willis also is um, kind of, you know, hurt on this movie. You know, there, there, there are a few injuries, not terrible injuries. But, you know, one of the things is using these guns uh, that that sounded real. And, you know, they had these great special effects. They actually went 
uh, and made their own, like very much like uh, the way that the way that Warren Beatty kind of got those sound effects for Bonnie and Clyde, you know, shooting real guns into trash cans and getting this reverberation. Joel Silver had this collection of amazing guns and they actually went out in real places and shot them. But they also really wanted to be shooting blanks. And because Bruce was shooting these blanks all the time, he lost some of his hearing on this movie. It was just too, uh, too much. And it, you know, so this is the beginning in a, in a weird way of these action stars at the time, you know, not protected like that, that jump in the elevator shaft when he, you know, Bruce Willis, but is actually a stuntman jumps from like one side to the next, but then slips and then grabs onto the next, you know, rung. That was an accident. That wasn't supposed to happen. It looks so good. They kept it in there. Um, you know, again, the John McTiernan has a belief that like all stunts should be done three or four times. He doesn't want anyone to be hurt and you need people who are good with their body and a great stunt coordinator to do that. And I think the movie does have that, but I will say, you know, there were, there was some damage. There was some damage to people in this movie. Well, yeah. I mean, that whole scene where Alan Rickman is doing his like, yo bro, what's up? I just work here. Whatever that yeah. California version of an Love accent is. Accent. He's doing that whole scene on one leg because he'd hurt the cartilage in his knee. And he'd hurt on more of a subtle thing. Like, I think he just fell three feet and but whacked his knee really badly. Oof. But yeah, oof, it definitely hurt. Although at the time, everybody wanted to just talk to him about like his amazing falling to his death scene, which there are two versions of this. I'll say the, the proper one and then I'll say the one that I believe. The proper one that you always hear is that they strung up uh, Alan Rickman to fall to Hans Gruber's death in that they did the countdown and that they, of course, like we said, said, you know, we're going to drop you on three. One to boom and dropped him there to get the surprise. And then they kept the first take of like the total surprise. But Jan de Bont has been like, that's absolutely not what happened. We dropped him several times. And I wanted to specifically try to use a later take because it's only after he's used to what the fall is going to feel like that then he can also add on the level, not just of surprise, but of like tragedy, of sadness, of knowing you're going to die which you don't know that you're going to die if you think that you're like actually acting, if you know that there's a balloon, like, you know, the giant pillow that's going to rescue you at the bottom, that they wanted to give Alan Rickman time to layer a performance onto this. So in that case, they took it, they took the third take, but they did still drop him when he wasn't expecting it. And by the way, that now is the inspiration for my advent calendar, which I have. I have a Hans Gruber advent calendar. You can see it on my Instagram page. Wow. Uh, the film has been a source of inspiration for filmmakers, including Lexi Alexander, Darren Aronofsky, Brad Bird, Joe Har- Carnahan, Gareth Evans, Barry Jenkins, Joe Lynch, and Paul Shear and his advent calendar. Which yes, you can see get now. it on there. And just watching this movie, what is so fun about it is watching it with people who've never seen it before. My wife had never seen it. And what? I watch it with her. Yeah. And she absolutely loved it. It's a movie that does hold up. It's a movie that, you know, because they're cut off from communication, right? So it allows it to kind of be this timeless film. You know, there's no piece of technology. There's enough technology to make it not feel uh, super like, oh, well, if they had technology, no, this would happen. There's a little mix of it. It kind of falls in a perfect year. It feels timeless. It really does feel timeless and current. And I, and I've really, has it, to say that I've never really found anyone who disliked Die Hard. But why doesn't it garner the respect? Like whenever I see these top 10 lists or these top 100 lists, Die Hard's not in those lists. And I would argue it is a seminal piece of action filmmaking across the board. Just like I think the way that Pulp Fiction or Jaws started a trend in cinema you can't deny that this movie started a trend in cinema that we still try to do to this day. 
Well, it is 13 years younger than John Dealman. And John Dealman didn't make it onto the Sight and Sound Top 100 list until 10 years ago. And it didn't make it into number one until this year. So there is a chance that perhaps with another 10 years of reflection, Die Hard might finally get the respect it's due. It did do that kind of Transformers-y thing of getting four Oscar nominations, but all for like editing and sound, where it's like, we recognize that you are a movie that has an impact, but we will only respect your technical craft. And I do think that this distance that you're talking about is one of the reasons why we're able to even see it through a more optimistic lens. It's like you have to get away from how people felt about Bruce Willis in 1988 to just see him now as Bruce Willis movie star that doesn't everybody love. Why wouldn't you love Bruce Willis? And kind of decompress from all of that negative energy around it. But there is one little bit that dates it for me and dates it in a way that makes me nostalgic. So Kareem rebounds, right? Feeds Worthy on the break, over to AC, to Magic, then back to Worthy, right? Boom! Two points. We're in. Man, I, I just want to hear that you were joy. Gonna, uh, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I knew it was coming at one point. I, I feel like we, we couldn't leave this without just briefly touching on the grand debate, the great debate of Die Hard. Is it a Christmas movie or not? I often say that, you know, John Hughes is so inspired by Die Hard that he made Home Alone, which is just kid Die Hard. If you look at the similarities, I'll break it down one time into a video. It's the same movie. Um, But is this a Christmas movie? It's a, you know, it's a movie that takes place on Christmas. Is Home Alone a Christmas movie? I mean, is what is a Christmas movie? I mean, the Christmas Carol is a Christmas movie, but like what requirements do you need for it to be a Christmas movie? I guess that's maybe my, the question I want to ask instead of debating it with you, because I think it doesn't make sense. But I, I love this idea of like, well, what what does it need to be? What what does any movie need to be to be a Christmas movie? In your yeah, mind? Yeah, right. Like, it's so vague, I think, in a way, because one of it, I would say the tenets that people are looking for is like, does the spirit of Christmas infuse the movie in a way that maybe affects the plot. The way that Kevin McAllister going to a church and seeing people sing makes him miss his family. Is there enough Christmas in here that the Christmas of it all makes John McClane soften? Which maybe, like if it weren't for Christmas, would he even be in LA? Would he even be trying to see his family? Would he even be there in the first place? Probably not. You know, I mean, you have a lot of jokes, a lot of one-liners that are revolving around Santa Claus, ho, ho, ho. You know, we have kids on Christmas Eve. We have a Christmas Eve party where there's a, there's a lot of elements that are in Christmas movies. Yeah, like, because that's one of the tests, right? People have said, can you describe the plot of Die Hard without mentioning Christmas? Which, yes. Like, is it even necessary to say Christmas when you describe the plot I, of Die Hard? I do think, I do think it's no. hard to describe it because you have to say, why, why is everybody together? Late at night, it's Christmas Eve. I mean, I would say I that mean, without yeah. the Christmas of it all, you would lose my favorite line. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Like, that doesn't work. You can't have that line if it's not Christmas. I mean, Devin points out too, when Argyle is driving him from the airport to Culver City, what do they listen to? Christmas and Hollis Queens. You know, you got Run DMC on the radio. We talked about that earlier. Like, it's the first real music in the entire film. Like, I think that people think, oh, Christmas movies need to be feel good. But you know what? 
our character, just like Scrooge, changes over the course of one night. As someone who is open and, and the relationships change, they takes, uh, take in what's important to him. Uh, people, you know, I think that the gift of life is probably the best Christmas gift you could possibly give to anyone. And he gives that to everybody there. Uh, I do think that there's a lot of elements. I also think that the plan only works on a night when no one's around. I mean, I will say that that security guard who was working that night shift who got shot in the head, uh, what a terrible shift to work. All that being said, I think that this movie, it all makes sense that it's Christmas Eve. Like, it, there's a reason to it. But the movie came out in July, mm. and there is an important person who disagrees with you, and his name is Bruce Willis. Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's a goddamn Bruce Willis movie. So a yippee kaye to all of you motherfuckers. Good night! You know, we already read a bad review about this movie. We know the cultural legacy of this movie. I think it will continue to be a touchstone um, for all the action movies that we see. I think that even you can look into the Marvel world and see like somebody like Robert Downey Jr. and, you know, in Iron Man, like that's, you know, yes, he's rich, but he's not strong, you know, and, and this idea of like, there's a lot of these elements. Marvel, you know, before the movies, obviously the comic books are all about that. Peter Parker, all this these ideas of normal people becoming more than uh, normal is is something that we really are embracing right now is as culture. Although I do want to say, as much as right now we do think of Die Hard as just a firmament in a beloved canon, at least a canon of what audiences love, if not on the site and sound pool. You know, like right now, Rotten Tomatoes has a 94% fresh for Die Hard. That's not at all what it would have said in 1988 when this movie came out, when like most people actually... Thought it was maybe fine, not great. Nobody took it super, super seriously. I want to read one more snippet of a review from Vincent Camby, who, you know, dismisses Bruce Willis pretty easily, just says he's trying to imitate Mickey Rourke. But what Camby got into, I think, was almost predicting a time in which we would all love Die Hard, even when he didn't think people love Die Hard at this moment. He said, Die Hard is not a film for children, nor is it a film for adults. Instead, it is a movie for that new true blue American of the electronic age. The Kittelt, who may be 8, 18, 38, or 80. And Canby spends almost his entire review only talking about this demographic that he's inventing. The Kittelt is an amalgamated child adult whose capacities and interests are fixed at an early age. And Canby predicts that the wave of the future is Kittelt altruists. He says, as he walked up the aisle after the showing of Die Hard, he followed two, quote, aging young men in deep discussion about the movie. That scene, said the first fellow full of impatience, was a direct steal from Lethal Weapon. And Canby is saying this as though it is a nightmare that people will be talking about these movies very, very seriously. And that is what happened. I think he was correct in, in saying the kiddle will be the audience of the future. I mean, we just did that. We just did that we ourselves. We just did. Sorry, we did Canby. it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amy, you know... Uh, because it's Christmas Eve and Die Hard, maybe it's Christmas Eve for us as well. And we should take a little bit of time off, take a break. But you know what? Not without a homework assignment. We are not letting you go away on your break without a homework assignment. We are going to do some re-releases of some classic episodes uh, in the meantime. But we want you to prepare for when we come back for Jean Dielman. Jean Dielman, the number one film on the sight and sound list. We are going to crack into this film. It's a long film, so we're giving you plenty of time to catch up over the holidays. Everyone's talking about it. You can have an opinion about it. Come back and watch it. We hope you watch it. 
and it's been definitely something that everyone's been rallying for that we tackle. So we're going to start off the new year with something big, something in the, the zeitgeist. But also, we know that you need some time to watch it. We, we really hope you watch it. Yeah. Let's celebrate January. Let's kick off 2023 by saying, you know, we're not just kid adults. We like all sorts of stuff, man. We're diverse movie people who love all sorts of things. And yeah, if this is going to be number one on the site and sound, we should all go forth in 2023 talking about it with confidence. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to take Paul's word for it. I want you to take the word of somebody very near and dear to us who is leaving. It is our engineer, Devin Bryant, uh, who is leaving us, which breaks my heart. I'm going to try not to cry. Instead of, instead of me crying on this podcast, which is not good podcast audio, what I want is for Devin to say a few words, including his pitch for Jean Dielman. Yeah. Like, like, first of all, I want to hear your your pitch for John Dillman, but I also thought a, a beautiful send-off for someone who's been such an integral part of this show is to have your own kind of sight and sound list, your own, like, what what is, you oh, know, fun. Yeah. you know, someone who has been with us since uh, day one of the show, uh, who is uh, a, a movie nerd just like us. <laughs> what what are your topics? So I think it's the best way to get to know you for those of you who don't know him. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, th- yeah. So we have two things for you. Pitch us John Dealman. Okay. And then uh, tell us your your list. Well, first of all, John Dealman, 23K to Commerce, 1080 Brussels, is legitimately one of the best movies I've ever seen. That, that's that's just true. It's one of those movies that uh, Criterion put it out, uh, an edition of it, about maybe 12 years ago. And I, I bought it just because it sounded interesting. I had it for like a year or two, and I just kept putting it off. Same reason. It's three hours long. And I was like, oh, this is going to be dry. This is going to be this, that or the other. I had all these preconceived notions, sat down to watch it. Ten minutes in, I'm hypnotized by that movie. It is it's spectacular. It's very special. What it's talking about is very um, juicy, very contemporary still, very um, worthy of discussion, turning it over and over in your mind. It's not a movie that leaves you easily. And the central performance by Delphine Seyrig is just phenomenal. Um, it's it's really, really worth your time. And it's not the dry movie you might think. I'll say that. That's good for me to know because I'm a little bit da- I'm daunted by it. Uh, yeah. So that's good. All right. But now, Devin, you, we've heard you on the show. We've heard your picks before. You've you've argued for movies to be on the list. <laughs> uh, so we know a little bit about where you stand. But what are you know, as, you, as we send you off yes. uh, to your brand new job in podcasting, which I don't know if we can announce. <laughs> oh, we but, can say uh, but, if you want oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you'll be working over at Smartless, putting together some amazing shows for them exactly. as a producer. They are and, some uh, lucky people, and I hope they are. are indeed. <laughs> but it's going to be even better because they'll they'll get all the sides of Devin over there. But now my question is to you, like, what are, what list of films mean the most to you? It, it could be yeah. five, it could be ten, whatever. You, like, if it's say your, your, your real... Like you gotta love if if we were in a relationship with you, you'd have to see these movies. <laughs> totally. Um, I, I'm gonna try and keep to what they did on Sight and Sound and just just pick ten. Um, Got it. I drafted a little quick list here, just as since you asked, All and right. it's it's longer than that. There's so many I'm gonna be leaving out, but I'm just gonna stick with it. These are my my favorite movies, and I'm kind of taking uh, inspiration from like S.S. Rajamuli, you know, who, right. who literally yes. put down his favorite movies, not his pitch for like, this is the best. Maybe he thinks it's the best movie ever made, but it's unimportant to him. These are the 10. So that's that's where I'm kind of coming from. All right. So for me, I've said it a couple times before on the show, Bottle Rocket, Wes Anderson's first movie. That is it's just beautiful. It's a light, fluffy film. There aren't enough movies with that kind of tone. Love it. Broadcast news. 
one of the greatest scripts ever written. I adore broadcast news. It's so funny, so quotable. The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by uh, Louis Ooh, yeah. Buñuel. That is a movie that, I mean, the poster is hanging up in my living room. Uh, it has been in every apartment I've lived in for like 15 years. I adore that movie. I've seen it 20 times. I could watch it 40 more and still get new things out of it. Jackie Brown. Now, yes. Jackie Brown is one of the best fucking movies. Yeah, I love made. it. I love it. I could, you know, you could pick a couple different Quentins, but it's just Jackie Brown for me. I, I revisit it almost every Thanksgiving. It's just a comfort movie. You don't get middle aged relationship love stories like that in, in movies. And God bless it. I love that movie. Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread is a newer movie, Great. but yes, it's, it's one that, again, as with Sean Dealman, hypnotized me from the get go and does not let me go. I love it. Um, Before Sunset. The middle right. movie of the Before trilogy. I because, just bought that trilogy on on Criterion. I mean, you can't go. I love the third one too. I think Before Midnight is very underrated, but you can't beat Before Sunset. It's got the it has the the ending. Oh, I can't even yeah. I can't even describe it or I'll start crying. Um, Silence of the Lambs. Have to have a Jonathan Demi on there, and I I really think that's a perfect movie. I I, I you know there's th- things to discuss about it in hindsight, but even so, I think the movie itself is perfect. Um, Halloween. Absolutely. Love this. That, okay. Exactly what Amy said. It's a perfect grilled cheese sandwich. You can't beat it. <laughs> it's, it's I just, love this. Does what it says. I got to pick Vertigo. You guys know I'm the reason it's still on the, the API. Yes. Because yes. I keep arguing for it. I think it's I think it's really uh, it's it, it's a movie you can write a dissertation about, you know, several probably different ones that are all opposing each other. And that to me is really interesting. And final movie on my list, Mulholland Drive gotta be a lynch and i think it probably is that one but you know again i'm leaving out like a fish called wanda i'm leaving out the long goodbye by altman mikey and nikki by elaine may jean dealman daisies by vera kitalova you know blade i love blade we know i love blade yes king of comedy barry linden there's so many being left off that list but but those 10 i'd be very happy if that appeared under my name in sight and sound i love this list amy and what a great tribute to uh you know, a person who has been a, uh, an integral part of this show. Thank you, Devin, for your your years of service. It's been my pleasure, uh, literally. And and we'll be listening to whatever you are producing uh, in the near future over at Smartless. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, with us. you guys. So, that list alone well, uh, just gives a glimpse into like how brilliant and valuable you have been during these years making this show. Aww. You know yeah. movies backwards and forwards, and and. Oh, God. Here I go again. (laughs) (laughs) But you guys are going to be back in the new year with all sorts of exciting things. I've been at least part of the conversation for what you guys might be doing in Jan. And I can promise the listeners, like, you know, there's not going to be any interruption in service. The show is going to keep kicking ass. Well, we are excited to get into John Dillman. You've made me more excited to watch it. I hope you've rubbed off on our our listeners as well. And what a great one to end on. Die Hard, one we've threatened on for years. Hell yeah. Uh, We got to do it. So... That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there 
where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.